All right, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this Lord's Day to worship, and we're thankful for what we've already been able to participate in together, uh, the hearing of your word and the celebrating of your Eucharist feast. And we're thankful for this season and what we're about to enter into in this week. And I pray and am grateful, Lord, um, in your providence, how Philippians 2 sort of lands with us on this day that's fitting. And I pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts and our minds to what you have to teach us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so we're in Philippians 2. I, I really don't feel like we did justice to all of one, but we'll, we'll move on. And you'll recall, for those of you who have been with us a little bit, that Paul has, in really one of his more affectionate ways, communicated to this particular church at Philippi the fact that they, they share together in the work of the gospel. Um, Paul is, is especially warm to this congregation because they have linked themselves to the public shame that Paul has been bearing because he is now in chains because of, the, because of, of, of his preaching and his apostolic ministry. Um, so Paul is he's effusive. Um, he's effervescent here. I'm, he's telling them that I'm praying for you all the time. And then he, he exhorts them to let them know that God who began something in their lives will bring it to completion. And then Paul goes back to praying again. That's, that's a kind of Pauline pattern, I think, that, um, uh, that Paul, uh, when he is deeply concerned and overwhelmed with uh, gratitude and grace, that he tends to uh, move to prayer. Oh, we closed the door. See, that's what, that's what Noah felt like. That's <laughs> scary. Come on in. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, but but now we're, we're going to move right into Philippians two, and this I would I would argue that Philippians two verses one through eleven it probably ranges somewhere near the heart of the letter, and I think we could probably be fair enough to say that Philippians two one through eleven ranges somewhere near the heart of Paul's theology. Um, these are verses worth thinking on and reflecting on. For a long time, and I don't even know if we'll finish it today, but I want to read the first 11 verses, if that's okay, and then we'll just kind of work through what I think are some of the bigger implications here, and, uh, and we'll see where the, plan, the plane lands. All right, so here's the first 11 verses, and I, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but my view on Bible versions is, frankly, re- read whatever one's closest, but that, that's um, it's not very well thought through, uh, but my, I'm reading from the ESV. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, would you bring to maturity, that's Genelette's gloss there, my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross kind of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and he's bestowed on him the name 
that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in sort of technical, uh, exegetical or interpretive language, verses 1 through 11 are a, it's a standalone pericope. That's a technical term. Um, I, I wrote a piece one time um, for a book that was edited at Beeson uh, that came out with a Baker publisher. And um, I guess the spell checker got that word, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E, and fixed it to periscope. <laughs> and it's actually now in print as periscope. Uh, anyway, um, but so two, I'm, I'll do this real fast. I'm not spending a lot of time over here. But two, one through 11 is a kind of standalone unit. The technical term for that being a pericope. All right, that's your million-dollar word for the day. Um, but I actually think structurally, if you think about how 1 to 11 work, verse 5 is the central verse that... And I'll use two metaphors to describe it. One would be that, that it's Janus-faced. You remember this from Greek mythology? Janus is the two-faced person that looks sort of backwards and forwards. So verse 5, I think, sort of looks back to 1 to 4 and forward to 6 to 11 at the same time. That's one metaphor, that's, that it's Janus-faced. Another one would be um, that it's a... Here's my fancy drawing of a book. <laughs> um, that it's a hinge. It's a hinge around which the two doors... Namely, verses one through four and six to eleven, how how they what they move around. Um, so, for example, if let's read verse five, and what we're going to do is we're going to start at verse five and then move out from it uh, backwards and then forwards. So here's verse five: Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what other translations do we have here today? Any NIVs around? What do you? What is it? What does verse five say in the NIV? You have the NASB? Uh, no, American. Oh, American, the American Standard, okay. Anybody have God's Bible, the King James Version? <laughs> Nobody? Nobody? Um, let, this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the King James, right? Yeah, that's the one version, actually, I know the best on that one. All right, so let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is an exhortation. It's a, it's a challenge um, for the people at Philippi to be imitators of Jesus. Now, we've got to talk about this um, because he's going to tell them in the first four verses what imitating Jesus actually looks like. That's what he's going to tell them in the first four verses. And then in the last, what, five verses or six verses, he's going to show them what it is they're actually imitating in the life of Christ. What is it that Christ models for us that we're actually to imitate. So this is a large question about what it means to be imitators of Christ and whether or not that language is even good language. Um, the, the technical terms, and you'll read about this in the history of the Christian tradition, is, is imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ, um, which has a long shelf life in, 
in the, in the mystical and the spiritual tradition of the church that you find primarily with medieval mystics, say in the medieval period. So this imitating Christ, being like Christ, which I think we could say on one level arose to, to a kind of abuse within the life of the church that I would say our tradition, the Reformation tradition, sort of stepped into to try to correct some of those abuses. And now I think we can raise the question in here, and let's just see where this goes, whether or not we've overcorrected in some of this, thinking about what it means to be imitators of Jesus. Now, what, what are the, there are dragons, I was just going to tell you, there are dragons involved in this, or to use other sort of metaphors, there are rocks that we can crash on on each side of this discussion. Um, and so we sort of want to enter into this carefully, but I want to raise this question for you. What does it mean to be an imitator of Christ, and how does one use that language responsibly, given the fact that Jesus has completed all of the law's requirements in both his life and his death? So that, that's the question I want to put before you. What does it mean for us, and how can we use the language of the imitation of Christ responsibly, given the fact that Jesus has completed all of our salvation for us in his person and his work? That's the challenge that I think we have to think through, and it's a challenge that we have with Paul um, here this morning. Let let me also tell you why I think this is especially uh, pertinent, uh, given what's happened over the past, say, 200 years of the Western intellectual tradition. I'm going to go back to the chalkboard. All right. Uh, I don't do the chalkboard very much, but I like it. Uh, Let me erase this. So, uh, the medieval period, uh, and this starts with Gregory the Great. Eh, Actually, no. John Casian, but that doesn't matter. Forget all that. Um, So, uh, you have an exegetical approach or an interpretive approach to the Bible that was dominant in the medieval period, referred to as, lovingly, I guess, the quadriga. All right, the quadriga. I was in conversation with a resident theologian in our town whose name, if I said many of you would know, um, who wanted to start a preaching conference uh, in Birmingham, we never, the plane never got off the runway, but he wanted to start, and he wanted to call it the Quadriga, right? Well, what does it mean? Well, it's the notion that the Bible has a fourfold sense to it. That any biblical text has a fourfold sense. You have the literal sense. Okay? That would be the verbal and historical character of the text. It's its basic uh, form. And I would say, with Augustine and the whole history of the Christian interpretive tradition, that you cannot make theological arguments apart from the literal sense of the text. It's important that the text and the words that are there in that text, that's what puts the pressure on the church to think theologically about its faith and its practice. But there are other senses built on the literal sense. That's the metaphor here of a building. So this is your foundational sense. But the building gets built up by three other senses, namely the allegorical sense. And that's where the literal sense is extended or lifted into a larger frame of reference. Think about what Paul does in Galatians chapter 4, right? 
He tells them, this is a, I'm telling you this is an allegory. I'm giving you the story of Sarah and Hagar. But guess what? Sarah and Hagar are representations of Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. That is an allegorical reading. It elevates the literal sense to a larger plane of reading. Think about what John does in John chapter 3. As the serpent was in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that bronze serpent, a historical moment in Israel's life, is not left there. It's now a type, an allegory, a figure of something that God would do in time, in Jesus. Uh, St. Aqu- Thomas Aquinas, um, who I'm gaining more affection for, pray for me, uh, but um, I told you that I've got a colleague that has a t-shirt with Thomas Aquinas on it, that, and the caption says, the original deep fat friar. Have you heard that? Uh, yeah. The, the, theology jokes are, they're bad, they're bad. Uh, anyway, uh, Thomas Aquinas, he said, when it comes to the way in which we communicate and speak, human beings use words to signify things. That's what we do all the time. That's how we make sense in our speech structures in our world. But Aquinas goes on to say, and he's borrowing here from Hugh of St. Victor, he goes on to say, but only God can associate things with things. See, we do words to things, but God, in his providential ordering of time, can associate things with things, like the Passover lambs, like the bronze serpent, like, and then the list just goes on and on. We heard about it this morning from Doug so well, right? Uh, from the book of Zechariah. That's a, that's a kind of allegorical reading related to the literal sense. Well, there's another reading, the anagogical, which is an eschatological reading, which now takes, let's say, that um, image of Jerusalem, and now it's no longer talking about the church primarily. Now it's talking about the kingdom of God in its fullness on the far side of the resurrection of the dead. That would be a kind of eschatological, what they would call an anagogical sense. And the final one, and this is the one I wanted to talk about, is the tropological sense. And what's the tropological sense? That's... That's the moral sense. That's where the text that you're reading now has something to say to you about how you order and shape your life and your thought and your prayer and your actions. The tropological sense. And all of these were sort of fitted together, if I can sort of simplify it, into the important relationship between the literal sense and the spiritual sense of the Bible. And um, if I can use what this origin used in the second, uh, the third century, the metaphor that he uses is the, bo- the Bible has a body and a soul. And the body is its literal sense. We need bones. We need the words. But the soul is what the literal sense means in light of the fullness of God's revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you have all those senses sort of up and running. But here's what happens. You get into the 17th century on the far side of Calvin and Luther and all these magisterial reformers. And what happens in the intellectual life of Europe is the arrival and the, I guess the burgeoning move of what we call the Enlightenment. I don't want to bore you. I'll lose you right here. I don't want to bore you. Um, but what was one of the massive implications with a figure from the Netherlands named Baruch Spinoza, one of the massive implications that happened in the 17th century is this. These three senses here all became problematized. The literal sense, the theological sense, the eschatological sense, that that part of the Bible that tells us 
how we understand God and nature, the nature and the world, the classic language of metaphysics, how, what, what is actually being, what, what does it mean to think? I mean, for the whole life of the church, really the Western world, the Bible did all of that for us. The doctrine of the Trinity was not just, you know, one way in which we organized the Christian faith. The doctrine of the Trinity was the means by which we make sense of the whole world. Right? So, I mean, this, this is big stuff. That was all, that all came undone with the rise of Enlightenment thought. But what was left with the Bible for someone like Spinoza? The tropological sense, the moral sense. So all of the important sort of what we'd say theology, the revelation about God's being, the revelation about salvation, the ways in which we might think about ordering society, even thinking about economics. I mean, all the things that we try at least to let our minds be shaped and governed by the authority of the Bible in all spheres of life. The, 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 the major figures in the Enlightenment of the 17th century said no to all of that. That's the special provenance of philosophy alone. Theology has nothing to teach us in that area. We let the natural light of our reason do that work. But what can the Bible then do, Mr. Spinoza? It can teach you to be kind. It can teach you to be charitable. It can teach you to be loving. And so what you have is absent God, right? And the theological sense of the Bible you're left with the tropological sense, the moral sense. Why do I say all that? I say all of that because the residue of those instincts that were sort of imbibed in the Enlightenment that birthed so many different kinds of grandchildren is seen all the way through the 20th century, even into the current time. And can I just tell you where you find it? And I hope this doesn't make you upset, because I don't know where all of you are, but you find it in sort of the liberal theological tradition. What, what, what is the Bible about? It's about the brotherhood of man, and it's about, the, it's about ethics, it's about moral reasoning, and all of that is important. Okay, I think moral reasoning, ethics, all that's very important, but it was the moral and the tropological absent the theological. And the two, from Paul's perspective, and from, I think, the best of the, of the Christian tradition's perspective is, I cannot have the one without the other. I cannot think morally and ethically alone apart from a confession of faith about how the world actually is and how it works. Namely, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's why I say, you know, there, there are dragons here. Because Paul is calling us to an imitation of Christ, but he's not calling us to an imitation of Christ in the ways in which that language has been used in really kind of the best of the American liberal theological tradition. And I, I would say there, there is something, well, I'm chase that rabbit, um, the best of, of the American uh, sort of liberal theological tradition. So, think um, uh, uh, Sheldon, what's his name? We had to read it for the wilds. Uh, In His Steps, George Sheldon Smith, what's the author of that, In His Steps? What would Jesus do? Charles Sheldon, that's it. Charles Sheldon, in his steps, right? I mean, I read this as a teenager going off to Christian camp. And what was, the, what was that book about, for those of you who might know it? Well, it was a question that was raised in a church. Um, what would happen to our local body if all of us asked the question, what would Jesus do before we did anything? And the church, just in the book, just 
completely was revived. Right? People, you know, a man's about to yell at his wife. Well, what would Jesus do? Not that, right? <laughs> um, you know, or he's about to undercut his colleague at work. Nope, Jesus wouldn't do that. So, and, and that became, a, I, I kind of became culturally sexy in Christianity, I guess, a decade ago. People wearing WWJD bracelets. Well, that's all based on a classic novel in his steps. And there was a lot of reaction against that against people that I would consider to be my own sort of theological friends. In other words, the question to ask is not, what would Jesus do? The question that you need to ask is, what has Jesus done? That's the question, right? And this is where I want to say, yes, and yes, right? In other words, we, we put ourselves on the horns of a false dilemma when we are forced to choose one over against the other. And that's the tension that I think we have to live into given what Paul is telling us here. Paul is calling us to an imitation of Jesus. But he's doing so, and I'm borrowing here from theologians that I like. I'll go and tell you. I'm borrowing here from John Webster and a German theologian named Eberhard Jungel. But these two theologians are very helpful. They're calling us to an imitation of Christ not so that we can actualize the person and work of Jesus in our world, but so that the finished work of Jesus, accomplished and triumphant, can be extended into our world. I think this is a helpful distinction. Not to actualize it, but to extend the finished person and work of Jesus into our world. Um, let me give you a few quotes here from John Webster. Ethical consequences do not... Um, consist in imitation alone, but in response to what has been accomplished already. Here's another one. Imitation, I like this. Maybe we'll make t-shirts out of this for a class. Imitation does not make sons or daughters, to use adoption language, but adoption, sonship, it makes for imitators. But here's the final one that I want us to think about. And this is from John Webster. Christ's work is more than vicarious. Now, think about this. We talk a lot around here at, at Advent, and rightly so, about the vicarious work of Jesus on our behalf. That means He substituted for us, especially as we go into Holy Week, right? He substituted for us not just in His death, but also what? In His life. He lived life for us. He died death for us. And I think we, we want to affirm that and hold on to that with everything that we can. Why? Because that is at the heart of the gospel. But Jesus lived life for us. He died death for us. He satisfied everything within God's order of judgment and justice in this world. Jesus has done it all. But here's what he's saying. We don't want to reduce it to the vicarious nature. We also want to recognize not just that it's vicarious, but it's also evocative and provocative. The work of Jesus is vicarious, yes, but it's also evocative and provocative. It evokes something for us and it provokes us to what? To imitate what Jesus embodied and what he modeled in this world, recognizing that we will die sinners and that we will die righteous both at the same time. We will die that way. right? We're not actualizing the gospel in our lives or the world. Jesus does that. But we're extending it through an act of the imitation of Jesus Christ. So can I read those first four verses to you one more time? Here they go. If you have any encouragement in Jesus, if you have any comfort that comes from love, what love? 
love of God, the love of neighbor, the love that comes from Paul as an apostle, the love of the gospel, any comfort from love and any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, bring my joy, which you are my joy, Philippians, bring it to maturity. And here Paul goes again. I mentioned this last week. Paul rarely, if ever, leaves these kinds of challenges in the abstract. He doesn't just say, fulfill my joy. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. Verse 3. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a call to the humiliation and the humility that comes in being linked to Jesus, who was, and we're going to hear this on Friday, who was had no form, who had no comeliness, that we would be attracted to him. And here is Paul saying, I want you to follow in that road by considering others more important than yourselves. Now you have to think about this from the world of the first century. Paul is speaking right into the virtue tradition of Aristotle. I mean, this this was in the air of a place like Philippi or Corinth or Ephesus. What did it mean uh, to be virtuous? What did it mean to be morally excellent? And what does Aristotle teach us? What he teaches us about living in the means, in the medium, between two extremes. Um, Don't be someone who laughs and goofs off at every joke you hear. That person is a buffoon. But don't be a bore either. Somebody who is, you know, lifeless and has no sense of humor. Don't be that person either. Be someone that's what? In the mean, in between the two. He calls us to this kind of life of, of virtuous excellence. Um, temperance, prudence, chastity. I mean, you, you know all these. I mean, this is so much part of our culture now. Do you want to know what, uh, what particular virtue that Paul's talking about here that Aristotle never talked about? Cicero would have never thought of it as a virtue that was ingredient to the virtue system that was received from the Greeks. You know what it is? Humility. Humility was not a Greek or a Roman virtue. It was actually something to be eschewed. Here is Paul being counter-cultural in the, in the most affrontive way that he could, given his place and time. I know that you've not been taught that humility is a virtue to be prized, but if you're going to link yourself to Jesus... And if you're going to live into what he's called you to be and to do, then humility is a proper virtue that's, that flows from the reality of what Jesus has modeled for us. I don't even know how to talk about humility. I just don't know how to do it. I mean, my dad always makes jokes about humility. You know, the, like the moment you get the most humble award and you accept it, you immediately have to turn it back in, you know. No, you know, we've got jokes about this all the time or, you know, one of my, one of my good friends from Greenville, South Carolina, he's a pastor there, he's, he often will say, well, that's enough about me. Why don't you tell me what you think about me? Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to know how to even identify what humility is. But again, Paul doesn't leave it in the abstract. You see, we, I'm going to be careful I say this. Well, we can often, I think, in our culture, identify humility with certain personality types. This is not about a personality type. Someone's effervescent, someone's a little more meek and mild. It's, 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 it's irrespective of that. What's humility here for Paul? Considering others before yourself. I mean, I live 
in the green in the uh, Birmingham Zoo, um, where this is the exhibit of lack of humility is on display all the time. I mean, my wife is on a road trip this morning going to a funeral, and I, I had the children this morning in the house, and it's like here is the exact dark matter of Philippians 2 on display in my home, and I'm leading the charge. Everybody just shut up and get in the car. That's that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, the, with children, models show so much about what it means to have me first. I mean, I've got a particular child who, you know, regularly, it's like, no, let them bat first. No, let them get the ice cream cone first. I know you're first in line, but let someone else go for it. It's, it's just ingrained in us, isn't it? We don't have to work hard to think about putting ourselves before others. And here Paul is telling us to at least become conscious of the fact that following in the Christ way, in a cruciform path, forces us to think about others before ourselves. Now, I realize that there are things that have to be thought through and when we become, when, when relationships get abusive or when you become overly passive in such a way that you're being taken advantage of. And I, I realize there are philosophical and ethical issues that are attached to this particular phrase here that would need packing out in particular situations, right? So this is not a one size fits all, but it's a call to a kind of consciousness that thinks in terms of others um, before ourselves. And we are not predisposed to that. Let me rephrase that. I am not predisposed to that. But here Paul is saying, and now remember, he's not just talking about individuals. He's talking about the church. So let's say he's talking to the church of the Advent Cathedral. Can you imagine Paul writing us? Oh, oh, Advent. Complete my joy. Well, how would you do that? Well, some of you have deep and entrenched opinions about things that are informed and thoughtful opinions. But when you talk about them, when you think about them, when you articulate them, let's do so in a way that models and imitates the path that Christ has, that has ears and listens to others' views or listens to other opponents or listens to whatever. Why? Because we want to think about others before ourselves, not that we don't hold our convictions, not that we don't speak up for the truth. Here, again, there's nuance here. But there's a call to a consciousness about the ecclesial body that's marked in a cruciform way with what Jesus has modeled for us in his giving of himself um, for, for others. All right? And then, well, I don't, what's the time? Well, I'm done. So, next week, and I want to take a few Q&A because I think I have a few minutes for that. Next week, I want to sort of press into what, uh, do we have Sunday school on Easter? No. So, two weeks, all right, two weeks. We'll sort of press into what Jesus models for us in these next verses. But um, any, anything you want to bat around about this? Because we need to be more nuanced. I'll just tell you that whatever I just said, it needs to be said better. Um, but I'd like to hear what your, your thoughts are. Maybe we can press into this a little bit. Any thoughts, questions, opinions? Just an overall thought on Philippians. It's a nice short little letter to read. But the sense in there that Paul projects to me is that, you know, wait a minute, guys, you're doing something right, and I'm happy for you, and here's how you need to multiply that. It's not a letter of admonition for somebody like, you know, that is, that is, that is doing wrong, and, you know, you've done all this bad, and you're bad folks, but this is one, hey, you're on the right track. Increase what you're doing and do more. And you will find the kingdom of God. 
And it's, it's not an ad, it's not admonition, <clears throat> admon, admonitory, yeah. or condemnation, yeah. Yeah. but it's it's encouragement, a letter of encouragement. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's the kind of it's the kind of call I think that. Paul is doing here to want to encourage, and again, this is why the letter continues to make itself present in our time, but it's a call to reflection. And it's a call to reflection, not in a condemnatory way. It's, I mean, Galatians, I mean, Paul's got the gloves, the gloves are on the ground, and Paul's duking it out there. You know, oh foolish Galatians. You don't get that sense here in Philippians. He's not, he's not chiding them in that way. And I think, and maybe this is a good point. I've not thought about this way before, Coffee, but I think what you see in Galatians, why Paul is so affrontive against the Galatian believers is because the gospel is on the line. Well, we've just heard Paul in chapter 1 tell us that they're living into the gospel, and he praises God for that and prays that they continue to do so. And that's why this has a, a bit more pastoral side. See, a kind of moralistic preaching a moralistic preaching, I've not thought about this way, but maybe this is, this is, this gets at something. Moralistic preaching will sound like Galatians when it needs to sound like Philippians, right? Why does Galatians sound like Galatians? Because the gospel is on the line, which is the heart of our identity and our faith. But when you get into Philippians, this is Paul now being pastoral and loving. I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging you. I might even rebuke you mildly. But why? Because I want you to live into the fullness of what is there already for you in Christ. Let this mind be in you. In you. I've, I've not thought about the Galatians-Philippians comparison, but the tone is certainly different, isn't it? Yeah. And Corinthians. And Corinthians. Oh, yeah. They're, they're the worst. Yeah. <laughs> bad. Just real bad. Any, any other questions or thoughts? I mean, you know, in all fairness, the, the danger, and I grew, I grew up in a world that probably tended toward this danger, where the Bible and its truth-telling quality had at least the potential of being reduced to what it called me to do morally, right? Um, that's what, you know, for, so if we have a lot of kind of, the tropological was strong in my upbringing. Um, the five loaves and the two fishes become a kind of symbolic reference for what it means to share your lunch. Um, you know, Goliath becomes about the giants of sin that you have to slay in your life. Um, Abraham's faith becomes, you know, I, and I'm actually now to a point where I actually, I think that kind of thinking about the Bible is okay. I mean, there's room for that. But there's not room for that kind of preaching when it's divorced from the theological sense of what Christ has done in this person and work that shapes how I engage all of these things. And I think the proper ordering of those, right, our understanding about the indicative, the claims, the propositional truths that we know are true in our faith about Jesus, irrespective of what I do, that that then informs us, and here's a proper word from Galatians, and frees us to live into the imitation of Christ that Paul is calling us to. Not as a burden to be born, but as a liberation to be um, experienced. All right? Well, Lord, thank you for Philippians 2. It's, um, it's, we just got a little bit at it. And, I, and Lord, where I misspoke and, and, um, and didn't present this in the, in the tension and in the balance that it needed, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, correct that. Um, and let your Word shape us in Jesus as we enter into this holy week, let us see anew and afresh that you modeled for us that you didn't hold on to your rights, 
but you let them go, you relinquish them. Why? For us. And in doing so, you gain the whole world. Um, So, Lord, thank you for the model that you've given us. Thank you for our salvation. May we follow in your path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.